Good morning, church. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. It's good to sing praises to our Lord together, offer up our prayers corporately. And now I pray uh, that it be a blessing to sit under the word preached. If you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been working our way through this letter, and we've seen that as we approach chapter 29 this morning, is there's a uh, special emphasis on language and on speech that we see that uh, throughout Paul's letter that God calls his sheep by his word, that Jesus builds up his sheep with that word, intending that glorious, the glorious riches of the Father are seen in bringing dead sinners to life. And finally, here in the second half of the book, it is clear that Jesus rules his sheep by his word, kept in the bond of the Spirit with all prayer and perseverance. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in 25 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of your redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us petition his help together this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this day of rest that we may lay aside the worries and cares of our uh, worldly affairs and may now turn to heavenly truths, to divine blessings that we have found in Christ, your Son. Help us now, Spirit of God, to understand your word, to be changed by it, to be conformed to the image of Christ, Oh, Lord, how much we need you to guard our hearts, how much I need you to bridle my tongue so that I may speak your truth, that we may not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, one of our family's uh, favorite movies is Darkest Hour. And if you're not aware of this movie, it's based on the events of the first month of Winston Churchill's rise to being Prime Minister of Great Britain. It's during also a month in time during World War II. 
The movie is bookended by two speeches that Winston Churchill gives to Parliament. The first one is near the beginning of the movie where Churchill commits himself to building a war cabinet and that he plans also to wage war against Germany to ensure victory at all costs and by any means necessary. This first speech that Winston Churchill gives is received with little fanfare, little support, especially from his conservative party. Well, a number of things transpire, but by the end of the movie, another speech is presented. This is the well-known speech known as, We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches. And so it's with a million German troops at the Belgian border, ready to conquer the rest of Europe, that Europe, that Churchill recommits to resisting Hitler and fighting the enemy. Last few lines of his speech are now infamous. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. And we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. I think one of the reasons we enjoy this movie is because the movie depicts the power and importance of words of speech. I think we like it even more is because this confirms with Scripture's wisdom that death and life are in the power of the tongue. You know, it's interesting the emphasis on uh, words and our tongue and speech in Scripture. And yet it is probably the most overlooked thing in our Christian walk. We think little of our speech. We think more of our actions. And yet, Scripture puts an emphasis on both, but especially on our words. Here in Paul's fourth exhortation, he takes into account, or he takes this into the life of the body. Here, Paul has given five specific exhortations to believers rooted in the doctrinal truth of the first three chapters. So this morning, we will see again within our verse the continued exposition of the law by the Spirit of God through the mind of Paul. Last time we saw the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. A time before that, we saw that you shall not lie and you should speak the truth to one another. This time we look to the Sixth and Seventh Commandment. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Sinful speech is not limited to these commandments. The positive precept, though, helps us focus our attention towards speech that violates the second table of the law, specifically against the sixth and seventh commandments. We will address this exhortation by answering three questions. What speech is to be avoided? What is to be used? And to which end should be our goal? And in the end, I hope that we will find some help and some hope. We address our verse this morning by asking this first question, what what speech is to be avoided? It comes to us here in the English, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Here, as one commentator observed, Paul proceeds from a warning against doing harm to others by dishonest deeds, 
to doing harm to them by evil and corrupt speech. The Greek word translated unwholesome is actually a horticulture word. It was often used of fruit that is rotten. It properly means rotten and is opposed to well-founded speaking about which Colossians 4.6 speaks. Therefore, there is rotten talk poured out and wrongly founded, which infects, as it were, the souls of the hearers with its rottenness. For, as 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company corrupts good morals. We see that this idea of rotten, I think, or corrupt in an older translation, better comports or corresponds better with the positive command in the second half of our verse, where it says that we, uh, but only such a word as is good for edification. I think rotten or corrupt corresponds better with edification because where we have in rottenness or corrupt, an erosion or a breaking down. In edifying, we have a building up or a growing, that which gives life and that which corresponds to that which gives death. One commentator says that you that are Christ's true scholars must not think that to restrain gross deeds is enough and that words are free. But you must make conscience, conscience as well of sinful and idle rotten words as of evil deeds. And though that many evil things will be at your tongue's end, yet have stay of your lips as not to let any rotten word come out of your mouth. But when you are to speak, see your speech be good to edification That is, be such as either the matter or manner of it or both may increase the graces of God in them that hear it. The importance of our words being wholesome or being life-giving words are, are important on many fronts. But here in our verse this morning, it finds its importance is that it will give grace to those who hear it such that the opposite is true if our words are unwholesome or if our words are rotten or if our speech does cause death in those that hear. For the Spirit of God says in James 1, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, This man's religion is worthless. How we use our words is meaningful. It has correspondence to our faith. It has correspondence to that which we profess. For uh, James says in other places, in in one way we bless the Lord, and in another way we curse men or we curse our brothers. Paul's emphasis here is this is not to be so in the body of Christ. Paul in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 3 tells them, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, 
and abusive speech from your mouth. Here, Paul expanding upon this idea of unwholesome word, an unwholesome speech, corrupt conversation. And later in chapter 4, he'll emphasize filthy and silly talk or coarse jesting. But here there seems to be an emphasis on language that is abusive, language that tears down one another, language that is thoughtless and without intent, language that falls on the ears of the hearer as corrupt or as corrosive. Paul is condemning any use of the faculty of speech that is morally unhealthy, that suggests impure thoughts, a violation of the seventh commandment. Light views of sin, irreverence towards God, or trifles with serious things, profanity and obscenity, as well as careless or light speech. Profane religious and sacred concepts, which results in a nullification of sacred ideas conveyed by language. Helped along there by uh, Paul Bain in his commentary. We recognize that what Paul here is saying that is not to be used is language that is unfitting to the new man. Language that is unhinged or unconnected to a grounded mind or an enlightened mind or or a a mind in which the darkness is gone and the light has come. Remember, he begins this section in chapter 4, verse 17, where he says that you would no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. There it leads to the practice of every kind of impurity. But surely here Paul is making implication that This begins in the heart and often overflows in our speech. We must also, among these things, as we consider uh, not giving abusive speech, I think we understand something of that. I mean, we we know what it means to, um, to give harsh words to our brethren, to say things that are unkind, We may not think that uh, one thing that falls into that category and what is also to be shunned is flattery. We're not to flatter with our words either. Flattery is of no use to the hearer. It is actually corrosive to the hearer. For it builds up a false reality to them. A fault by which we abase ourselves and do hurt to those who, whose conceit and self-love we soothe and increase. This doesn't restrict us from complimenting, but we must guard our hearts from flattery. 
so that we wouldn't contribute to the conceit and self-love of others. We see that promotes death in the hearers. We understand what it means to, to give an insult, but do we understand what it means to flatter, to actually contribute to a person's pride? And so we may compliment one another. We may praise the Lord for the gifts that he's bestowed and blessed upon the brethren. We must guard our hearts from unwholesome words of flattery. So we are not to use our words lightly. We are not to use our words immorally, irreverently. We're not to use our words carelessly. We're not to use our words in a way that flatters. Then what are we to use? What words are we to use? How are we to speak to one another? Word of the Lord says, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Words that are edifying, simply that which builds up, whose aim is to bring or increase life. If we are not to murder one another, we're not to slander one another, speak falsely about one another, then we are to do, then we are to actually speak truth and we are to actually seek to increase life. Paul's letter to the Colossians is again helpful exposition or expansion of what is promoted. In Colossians 3, 16 and 17, it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We'll talk more about some helps as it relates to our language, but consider just this generality as you speak. Can after everything you say, can you say you did it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father? This is the type of language that is to be body language. If I were to steal some sort of symbolism there. Our language towards one another is to be aimed at building one another up and not tearing each other down. As our language is to be edifying and to be building up, a builder never sets apart his work without a plan or without intention. Oftentimes, well, I shouldn't say that a builder never does that because oftentimes my wife asks me when I head into a project, do, I, do you have a plan? Do you know what you're, you're set out on building? And though it's not written down, it is in my head. I do have a plan. I can see it. But usually it never translates exactly as it comes in my head. But I would be a poor builder who didn't have at least an idea of a plan. And yet we find the master builders have the most detailed of plans. 
And so if our speech is to be edifying, it is to be appropriate and never thoughtless. We often say, and we can, um, uh, I'll be, it's kind of jumping ahead, but we often say that uh, we don't mean, you say something, you say, I didn't mean to say that. Helped by uh, Paul Tripp, who's pointed out that we never say what we do not mean, for out of the heart, the mouth speaks. We may not mean for that person to hear what we were thinking or what our heart was feeling, but we certainly meant to say what we said. So when we speak, we ought to never speak thoughtlessly. The connection between heart and mouth, though, uh, should never be a a one-way road with no off-ramps. Hopefully, as we get to the help section, there may be some help, helpful off-ramps that we can put on that road for us, some wisdom that we may garner from God's Word. Matthew 12, 36 says that uh, Christ speaking says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Our words are to be Intentional and not careless. Certainly that creates in us a standard beyond approach as we see God's holiness reflected in his law, but consider it then at least as a a guard against your heart or a, a discipliner to our own minds that we should not have careless words. Paul Bain has been my helpful guide as I, we've studied Ephesians, and he's been helpful again here. He says, what kind of speech we are to use in our communication? Speeches of grace, ministering grace. To what goal and to what end are we to speak these words of intention, these words of edification, so that it will give grace to those who hear? We find again in God's word and in the exposition of his law to believers here, we find that the law of God is made useful to the believer through the grace of God, through the mediation of Christ and his righteousness, so that we may use words that will give grace to those who hear. This third use of the law, whereby we return to the law as a standard of righteous living for the believer Brothers and sisters, or or those that are here, if if you are not united to Christ, you cannot give words of grace to those who hear. You desire to do the best good in your speech? Follow Christ. Submit to Him. Believe in Him. And so then you will be given a new heart, and out of that new heart, Graces may come in your words. Proverbs 10.21, the tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Our words are to have an end of blessing. As blessing as it would be to give a blessing of means here in Proverbs of silver. Our words are to be a grace to those who hear them. 
Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, and then we'll go back to uh, Philippians chapter 4 from there. Colossians chapter 4, quickly, verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Here, grace is applied to our language. It is not just the intended end of our language, but it is also applied and seasoned in our language. That we speak with grace, that we have charity on our mind when we speak to one another. So that you will know how you should respond to each person. Corresponding to Ephesians chapter 4, where we are to speak only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Paul again to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4 in verse 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. These things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul's exhortation to the Philippians to dwell on those things is that so they would speak those things. So that their words would be a grace to those who hear them. We're to refrain our lips from unwholesome, corrupt, or rotten language or words. And we are to use words or speech that is meant to build up toward the end of grace, towards the end of, an, uh, of, of showing someone or, or speaking someone so that they may better understand the grace of God that is coming to your heart and is available to them in Christ. And so we may ask ourselves, How then can this be done? Is there any help? Because we may find ourselves lacking in these at times. I know some of uh, my most trying moments is when my wife asks me to encourage her. She says, encourage me. And I say, be encouraged. (laughs) Not always. But often I struggle with words that edify. Often I need help to encourage her. And so may this be of help to you as you consider and maybe find yourselves in similar ways. The first thing we should consider is first we should consider prayer and then pause. Prayer, first pray the Lord restrain the evil thoughts that are so easily produced within our old hearts. Psalm 141 Verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. May the Lord provide a guard over our mouths. May we ask the Lord in prayer for help. May we ask that the mind of Christ be forward in our new hearts. 
Bain describes our speech as the heart venting, whereby the heart is heard. So it goes beyond just the words of our lips. It goes to the seat of our speech, which is in the heart. It was our Lord in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 34 and 35, when he was rebuking the Pharisees that he taught, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Pray then that we would fill our minds and hearts with good things, so that by doing so, we water them as soil to spring forth saplings of edifying speech. You want to speak words that edify? Fill your mind with things that edify you. We often take for granted this. We often think we can handle certain speech and certain things. We think it doesn't affect us. It doesn't get down deep. And yet God's word speaks something contrary. We make a habit of it. We may find that bad morals corrupt we find here that we are to pray. Pray that the Lord would help us in our time of need. But we may also, in that time of need, pause. I think there are three questions that I've found that are helpful towards bridling our tongues. Proverbs 10.19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable but he who restrains his lips is wise. We should pause in our speech, pause in our responses. Here are some questions that can help restrain our lips. Is it kind? We read at the end of this section that we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving each, each other. Is what you are about to say, is it kind? The second question is, is it necessary? Are you just filling the air with your words? Is it necessary? If it is not necessarily uh, uplifting, if it is a word maybe of an exhortation or a word of admonishment, the question is, is it necessary? And the third question that I think may be helpful is that, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And is it true? I think these three questions can help govern what we say to others. It can avoid many words that we may find fall into the unwholesome category or to the rotten category. These off-ramps from our heart to our lips can help us. These are um, practical helps. These are moral helps. These are, these are things of, of practice and discipline. But we've been saying and I've been pointing out that Scripture says that our, our words come not, uh, not, don't come apart from our heart. And we know our hearts. We know the hearts 
of our old nature. We know the corruption of our minds. We know that unwholesome words are often spouted by us. We know that we may try this and we should diligently apply ourselves to this, but it may not always, and it will not always, be successful. So it's important for us to not just see that there is help, but that there is also hope. Psalm 121, I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The one who has fashioned your tongue, who has given you your mind, who has certainly given you a new heart. From there, your help shall come. Turn with me to Psalm 15. And keep your finger there because we'll be going there to Proverbs next. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does does evil to his neighbor. He takes up a reproach, nor does takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears by his own hurt and does not change. He does not put on his money, he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. I hope we don't read that and conclude that it's speaking of us. It's speaking of our help. It's speaking of our only hope, who is Christ. Turn now and see what is spoken of Christ in Proverbs chapter 8. It's been a while since Pastor Dana has uh, preached on this. So let me refresh you with these words. Proverbs 8, beginning in verse 6. Listen, for I will speak noble things. This is wisdom calling. This This is wisdom from above speaking. Listen, for I will speak noble things. And the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth. And wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Consider Christ. Consider Christ in his perfect righteousness. Consider Christ in being tempted in Matthew 4 by Satan. His first temptation was one of peace, or excuse me, was one of speech. We read that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. 
But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The first temptation of our Lord was one for him to speak unwholesomely, unbridledly. That he would speak according to the command or according to the temptation and request of Satan. We have a Savior who in thought, word, and deed is sinless. Who has never had an unwholesome word cross his lips. Whose heart was completely pure. Who meets the standard of righteousness. One who, as we are united to him, has spoken all righteousness for us. Because Jesus successfully passed his temptation, he was qualified to be the second Adam and merit a righteous status for us in the eyes of God. We cannot be the second Adam, but we can learn from Jesus' interaction with the devil how to defeat sin in our own life. Knowing and believing the word of God is the most effective way to avoid sin and grow in holiness. Let us know scripture well that we might stand firm against Satan. Gerhardus Voss says, even now, if we, are, we, if we are his true followers, the Son of Man comes to us in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels to impart unto us and strengthen in us that higher heavenly life which, leads, which needs no repression, no denial, and with which trials of the present are not worthy to be compared. Certainly we need help. Certainly we may utilize help, but we may, must never forget our hope. We must never forget the one who stands, who sits at the right hand of the Father on high, who intercedes for us daily, who now imparts unto us and strengthens in us that higher and heavenly life so that we may speak that which is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Let us pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks this morning for as we have considered your word, we recognize that we are ones of unclean lips. We are ones of impure hearts. But what has been provided or been lacking in us, has been provided to us in Christ. And so as we stand according to the first Adam, condemned by your law, we now find ourselves with joy, without condemnation in the second Adam, who has spoken all holy words, who has given as who, had, who has always given pure edification to the benefit of his hearers, but also to the benefit of those who now depend upon his perfect obedience. O oh Lord, that you would work in us by your spirit, wholesome words, edifying words. We may impart grace to those who hear. To your glory alone we seek these things. Help us, Lord.
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.